KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Hi, my name is Pablo. I'm with PCI, partnering with the County San Diego's Public Health Department. The reason why I'm calling is because we were notified that you were exposed to someone who has suspected of having COVID or has tested positive for COVID-19. Um, are you aware of this? Contact tracing calls like this one have been happening a lot since the start of the pandemic in cities and towns all across the world. And here at the border, obviously it's a lot more effective if the caller speaks more than just English. You know, they feel more comfortable when someone speaks to them in Spanish. This is Pablo Ramos. He grew up on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, in L.A. and Tijuana. Both his parents were actually undocumented. And it's not like someone who just learned Spanish. It's someone who understands the culture and where they're coming from and has lived through, through what they've lived through as well. Pablo is one of a small army of bilingual contact tracers here at the border. Folks who contract with the county's public health department to help to try to stop the virus from spreading among the region's Spanish speakers. Sometimes, though, people who pick up Pablo's calls think he's part of some kind of weird scam. But Pablo, he's actually gotten pretty good at earning their trust. Especially when the people on the other side of the line find out he speaks fluent Spanish, proper border slang and all. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, some people, I mean, they, they even said it. They're like, yeah, there's this person that called me in English and I just didn't feel like I was, I was going to be able to trust them. <laughs> and then I talked to them in Spanish and, you know, I'll joke around with them. And, and you know, when I'm asking some questions and, and you know, they, we have a couple laughs here and there and, you know, and then they open up and they're really friendly and then they, they're really thankful that, that we're taking the time to really understand what they're going through, see how we can help them um, and just be there to listen. Because sometimes they just want somebody to listen to and, and rant because, you know, this pandemic has not been easy for anybody. I always joke with my relatives, soy mexicano, soy mexicano, because I can say two words of Spanish. This is Colin Smith. Yeah, they make fun of me. They make fun of me. If you're willing to get made fun of, it builds trust. I definitely think that. Colin is a nurse in San Diego. I work at the hospitals there. I worked many COVID units for the past year, but I'm actually a float nurse, meaning I go to all the different units. But the last year has been pure COVID, pretty much. So yeah, Colin's jobs are in San Diego. But he actually moved to Mexico a few years ago and crosses the border to go to work. And Colin often finds himself leaning heavily on what little Spanish he's learned by living south of the border. I would need to employ my Spanish skills. Like, I can get through a day with the simplest directions with a patient. Uh, Spanish, you know, my Spanish is at that point. It's still terrible, don't get me wrong. Uh, grammatically, I don't even want to know how bad I sound, but they, I could give them basic directions. Colin told me a story about one of his Spanish-speaking COVID patients. He says the man's experience echoes a lot of moments he spent with Spanish-speaking folks who were separated from their families and friends, alone and scared in a hospital where no one spoke their language. Colin was using his best broken Spanish to convince this patient to lay on his stomach instead of his back. 
It might seem like a strange request, but it's actually a common technique that has a big impact in getting oxygen levels to shoot back up quickly. His anxiety was just so high, uh, just super, super high. And you know, he was entirely Spanish speaking. And um, I had to like sit there and talk with this guy for 15 minutes to calm his anxiety and talk to him about regular things. In that 15 minutes of time that you spend talking about, I don't care, Rosarito, Tijuana, what the food is like, you know, like the, the, that little bit of time makes them look at you as a person and not just a nurse who's just doing their job. And if you do that, that's everything. If they believe you're, you actually want them to get better, then they are now ready to do everything you ask them to do. It builds trust. Building trust. A lot of the plan to beat this pandemic relies on health officials gaining the public's trust. And people like Pablo and Colin they're just two tiny pieces of this huge, complicated puzzle that is battling a virus at the border. A place where trust sometimes requires translation. On the U.S. side of the border, the Mexican-American community has been hit hard by the pandemic. Disproportionately hard. So many Latin people have gotten sick, died, lost jobs. There are lots of reasons why the Mexican-American community is getting hit so hard. Deep-rooted social, economic, and systemic issues are at play. But a big part of the problem comes back to that trust. You know, there, there's so many factors that I think are against our culture for sure. And not even only that, but also even talking within our own family, discussing the vaccine and how they're being spread so much misinformation on social media or they're being, you know, they're being told something to be scared of that the government's trying to like, you know, do things to them. And, you know, it's like, it's a vaccine. The doctors know better, you know, than your friend from around the corner who called to tell you something. From KPBS and PRX, this is Port of Entry, where we tell cross-border stories that connect us. I'm Alan Liliental. Today, we've got a story about one border family's battle with COVID-19. It's a Mexican-American family who's hoping their story might be able to help other families like theirs rebuild trust in their families and in the public health system that's trying to reach them. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, so I want to tell you about Santiago Covarrubias. Santiago sounds like he could be my homie because he loved to cook. Los hermanos cocinando. <laughs> and like me, he also loved to sing. 
so that was his absolute passion. This is Carmen Covarrubias, Santiago's daughter. You know, he had mariachi and he always sang. You know, when we were younger, he would go in the bathroom and he'd have a little karaoke machine and he'd start recording, you know. And when that red light was on in the bathroom, we could not disturb. <laughs> Santiago was a big man with a loud, booming voice. A little intimidating if you didn't know him personally. But actually... My dad was like a big teddy bear, you know. He was just a great man, you know. He was he was a good, good man. Um, I can go on and on and on, but we'll sit here for like five hours talking about my dad. He was definitely a rock of our family. Okay, so the Covarrubias family. They're a big family centered in Chula Vista, a city in San Diego County just 20 minutes north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And like a lot of Mexican-American families here, they have members on both sides of the wall. And despite the border between them, the family is super close. Cousins are really more like siblings. We grew up very tight, very close, always at one another's homes. Big family get-togethers filled with lots of laughter and mariachi sing-alongs are sort of their thing. Santiago Covarrubias was one of the patriarchs of the family, and he was always getting nominated to cook his famous homemade carnitas and chicharrones for the gatherings. Delicious. Everyone wanted that, too. Every time we go to parties, hey, can Santiago make the food, you know? Basically, for the Covarrubias crew, la familia es todo. Here's Carmen's cousin, Jose. We didn't have much. You know, we come from very humble humble beginnings, but, you know, there was a lot of love and there's a lot of pride where we came from and pride in, in our last name and who we are and just familia and family. That's, you know, that's what it was all about for us growing up. For the Covarrubiases, the troubles started in November, right as COVID cases were beginning to skyrocket on both sides of the border. Santiago was in Mexico dealing with legal issues, and while he was there, his sister-in-law passed away. As a family man, Carmen says Santiago felt like there was just no way he could miss the funeral for his wife's sister. Look, this is a close-knit Mexican-American family. A family that shows up for each other, especially in moments of need. Santiago and the rest of the family had been taking social distancing, mask wearing, and staying home pretty seriously. They trusted the advice from the CDC and public health officials. But the family had made it almost a year through the pandemic without anyone getting super sick or dying. So like a lot of us, Santiago started relaxing. Unfortunately, right at the wrong time. Carmen told her dad not to go to the funeral, but she said he told her there are just some things, like the death of a family member, where you have to put some trust in God and take a risk so you can be there for your family. So Santiago flew to the funeral to be by his family's side. A few days later, though, Santiago just didn't feel right. But Carmen says he was the last to admit it. I don't know if it's the machismo in them, 
where they have this pride where they don't want to say, yeah, I'm feeling sick. Carmen says Santiago talked to his family over the phone. He told them he must have caught a bad cold. But he never lost his sense of smell or taste, so he assured them there was no way it was COVID. I would ask my dad, how are you feeling? And he would tell me, I'm fine, I'm fine. I don't want you to worry. But I can tell, you know, you know your parents. Finally, I started realizing he was getting worse, so I told my dad, you need to come back now. Eventually, Carmen convinced Santiago to fly back to Tijuana. And when he got there, his brother, Juan José, immediately saw that Santiago was in way worse shape than he was letting on. So when my dad finally came back, um, my uncle, as a matter of fact, picked him up at the airport in Tijuana and took him straight to the hospital. They called me around three o'clock in the morning to tell me that my dad was COVID positive um, and they were going to admit him. COVID rules prevented the family from being able to visit. And Carmen says it was really hard to connect with her dad. It was bad because he couldn't really hear us. So when we would try to communicate with him, it was hard because he already is going through hearing problems. And then we have this machine blowing in him. And it was really hard to communicate. I was on the doctors. You need to call me every day. You need to call me when this happens or whatever, you know. That has to be the hardest thing, I believe, when you have not just a parent, but a loved one um, in the hospital and you can't even be by their side. It's very hard. I feel very bad because I was not able to be there with him in the room to tell my dad, everything's going to be okay. You got this. You're going to fight through this. You know, and that was the toughest thing that we struggled with, accepting the fact that we can't even be with him. Santiago was having trouble breathing, so he got put on a ventilator. And from there, it was a quick downward spiral. On November 28th, just one week after he went to the hospital, Santiago took his last breath. I never thought that this is how my dad would go out. You know, I always thought, oh, you know, old age or something. But COVID, you know, took him. The Covarrubias family was crushed by Santiago's death, but they didn't really get the time to properly mourn. Because just a few weeks later, two more Covarrubias family members got the virus. So when we called my uncle, we said, Tio, you know, how are you feeling? And his response was, I don't feel good. I'm sick. So when he said that, we knew. Stay with us.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. I got sick in March of last year, and I had, I had it really, really bad. This is Jose Covarrubias, Carmen's cousin. So Santiago is his tío. Jose works in the fashion industry across the country in Brooklyn, New York. So he was right in the middle of the first big outbreak there last year. You know, at the time it was, Brooklyn was the epicenter of the world, you know, and we didn't know a lot about it. It was, you know, it was very scary. Jose says he's still dealing with long-term effects from COVID. So even now, a year later, he goes to the doctor every two weeks to treat high blood pressure, COVID, fog brain, and joint inflammation. But Jose says the worst part is that his sense of smell and taste aren't back at 100% yet. So, you know, I tend to eat foods that I know, that I remember, so I can just, you know, I have an idea of what everything tastes like, what I remember from, you know, so. I just remember when I was recovering, I was like, I don't ever want anybody in my family to feel, to have to be this, this sick, because it was, it was really bad. So Jose's dad, Juan Jose, was actually a lot like his tío, Santiago. Here's Jose and Carmen talking about the two Covarrubias brothers. He was born after your dad. Yes, they're actually about a year apart. <laughs> Mexican twins. Um, <laughs> they were always together. Wherever one went, the other one, you know, they dressed alike. They, <laughs> they liked the same things. So my dad was very hardworking, you know, he was strict when we were growing up, but he was all about love and you knew you were loved for sure. Funny though, he loved to make people laugh. He was a big jokester. He didn't like to dwell on things. He didn't like to be sad. He didn't like to worry. My dad was really big into yard sales and estate sales. So we would go and, you know, uh, go to auctions and buy all this stuff. And then we would clean it up. And then we would go to the swap meet on the weekends and sell. And he would have me there translating because he always said that people don't want to argue with a little boy. So he and, you know, he spoke well enough. But he knew that if he had me there, you know, negotiating, it was easier for the sell. Juan Jose lived part-time by himself in an apartment in Tijuana and part-time in Chula Vista with one of Jose's sisters, Monica. Monica was our, she was the baby of the family. She was just silently strong, very caring, very loving, took care of everybody. She has three beautiful children that she was very protective of and showered with love. And yeah, she was just... uh, A wonderful mom, very dedicated. Very dedicated to her children. My little brother says she was the best of us, for sure. She was like, she was our little princess, for sure. After the holidays, Monica started feeling sick. And just days later... Juan Jose started feeling sick, too. Yeah, people, I feel, 
let their guard down because my sister was so strict with my dad and her kids. Like she, you know, was really, really basically locked them up in the tower for a whole year, almost a whole year. Um, yes. You know, and then, you know, people kind of started relaxing over the holidays and having like small little gatherings. So, yeah, probably at one of those little family gatherings, both Monica and Juan Jose got COVID. And both of them eventually ended up in the hospital. And the family did everything they could to stay in constant contact, even though they weren't allowed to visit. My sister was able to keep her phone. So she was able to FaceTime with us and check in on everybody and constantly be, you know, worrying about us. (laughs) And we were just telling her to worry about you. Like, we got this. You know, we're taking care of your kids. We're cleaning up your house. We're taking down your Christmas decorations. And she was like, no. I'm like, no, I got this. (laughs) My dad, you never, we never trusted him because he would always lie and say he was fine. I was more worried about my dad because he's older and he has, they both had pre-existing conditions. But I was like, Monica's 35, she'll bounce back, she'll be fine. We were more worried about my dad. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Lolo, happy birthday to you. This is Juan Jose leaving a happy birthday message for his son Jose back in 2019. After Juan Jose's first week in the hospital, he was actually doing really well. His oxygen levels were up and he was looking good. There was even talk of him being discharged. But that's one of the many scary things about COVID-19. It can be unpredictable. And things can go south really quickly. I haven't really had a chance to really process everything because it's happened so fast. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I moved away many, many years ago. So for me, I've always had scenarios in my head of how everything was going to go down with my dad or my family, you know. And never once did I think I wasn't going to be able to get there in time to be with my dad and hold his hand or be able to say goodbye in person. But um, COVID, you know, you, you can't because you're not allowed in, you know, on, on the day that they knew that it was probably his last day. And um, we had to make a decision to end his care. Then they allowed us to go up to the hospital and go into his ICU, to the ICU floor. And from his glass door, we got to say goodbye. You know, we, and that was it. And what, what really struck me more than anything was we weren't the only family on that floor saying goodbye. You know, there was little pockets on that floor. There were little pockets out front praying because you can't all go in and say goodbye. It's, they limit the number of people. So you have to make a choice of who can go up there or who wants to go up there. 
yeah that that for me was like now that i think about it and like i have a moment to like breathe and you know just him being alone really it just makes me sad and just, and just and a little bit angry juan jose passed away on january 27th At this point, Monica was in a different hospital, in stable condition, and slowly getting better. But then she started getting blood clots. And on January 31st, one of those blood clots gave her a massive stroke. And they said that she had, you know, just severe brain trauma and she was paralyzed and the quality of life wouldn't be wouldn't be there if she, if she even survived the day. So we were able to actually go to the hospital and because she was COVID free that day, they tested her. We actually were able to go into her room with her. My mom, my sister and her three kids and we were able to say goodbye. We were able to hold her hand. We were able to, her, you know, and I thought that that was such a gift for her kids and for us because they were there with when she took her last breath and we were able to FaceTime the whole family. And, but for me, it was like the gift because we didn't get to say goodbye to my dad, but I felt that my dad and her dad were there, you know, taking her, taking her and making sure that she was crossing over, you know, peacefully. Four days after her dad, Juan Jose, lost his battle with COVID-19, Monica lost her battle too. One tragedy is enough, two at the same time, and then also compounded with November happening with, with my Theo. It's just, you know, we're just kind of like been hit so many times that one, you know, it's, um, we haven't recovered. And I don't know how long it's going to be till we recover because even we're so busy that we don't really are allow ourselves to, to think or to dwell. So I'm, you know, I'm just waiting for the moment where it's really going to hit me. And it's a little scary to, to think about when that's really going to happen and where. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do some people live long and full lives while others' lives are cut short? Why do we have a pandemic? I am the good shepherd, says the Lord. At the funeral for Juan Jose and Monica back in March, sadness hung in the air the way it always does when death is involved. But Carmen and Jose say there was also this overwhelming feeling of love and support. Their family, their friends, and even people they've never met, folks from inside and outside the local Latin community, really showed up for them. At last check, the family's GoFundMe had raised over 
$1,000 to help cover funeral expenses. Their family's story was covered on local TV news, so a lot of people felt really connected to the Covarrubiases. Maybe that's why almost 2,000 people have watched the live stream of Juan Jose and Monica's services on Facebook. Here's part of the live stream of the funeral that really stuck with my producer, Kinsey. It's Jose and Monica's brother, Marcos, sharing some sweet memories of their dad. My dad, when I was a little boy, I would sit on his lap and he would give me the biggest, the best hugs. squeeze me so tight and he made me laugh. I loved kissing him on the cheek. I loved it. It always tickled my face. I'll never forget. Even though Carmen, Jose, and the rest of their family are obviously still processing all the pain, the family is thankful for the positives, like all that incredible community support. And then there's the closeness they've regained by going through the tragedies together. I really, for me, I think this is a big wake-up call and a a life lesson for my family. You know, it's bringing us closer. Before the Covarrubias family lost three of its own in the pandemic, life had done what it does to a lot of families these days, even the tightest ones. Some of them had started drifting apart. But Jose says this experience has knitted the family back together, and now they're back to a place where they're looking out for each other, trusting one another to help the family navigate the pandemic and make choices that will keep everyone's safe from here on out. I hope we can continue. We continue this closeness. I hope we can continue checking in on each other. Um, We're such a big family, but, you know, a tragedy always brings everything tighter. Jose and Carmen say they see one more crucial silver lining in their family's tragedy. They've been using their story as a cautionary tale for the larger Mexican-American community because there's so much distrust out there. They personally know a lot of folks spreading misinformation about how the virus spreads or who are afraid of getting the vaccine. So they're telling everyone they know to listen to the public health advice Keep wearing masks and get the shots. Don't wait until it's too late. We're facing people who only trust the phone call or the text message or, you know, well, I heard and I saw and I read 
am, am I wrong? Carmen's shaking her head. Yeah. No, that's so true. <laughs> yes, definitely true on that note. I mean, how many times do we tell our parents different things, but they, you know, they would listen to their comadre or their compadre instead of listening to us. You know, we their would friends. give them like something to read. <laughs> yeah. We're like, read this. And they're like, no, no, I heard. I was told. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. What's the takeaway for this situation? What is life's lesson? Because you got to have something out of this tragedy, right? And I think for us, it's just the platform to be able to share our story and let people who have families like us know that this is a real serious thing and it's out there and you have to be careful and there has to be better education. There has to be, you know, we have to get the truth out there instead of like letting our people, our community, our raza suffer and not get the right information. I think that's, that's been our platform more than anything else. I hope the virus can slow down. I hope people can take precautions. Like, people have to be responsible, you know, not only for yourself, but for everybody else. Like, you have to care. You have to wear your mask. You have to, like, be careful. Get the vaccine if you're able to get the vaccine. And I just hope that we can just get over this and just go back to a day where we can actually see faces again and remember what it was like to eat in a restaurant or go to a movie theater. Or I just I hope that we can go back to that sooner than later. Next time on the podcast, we kick off a new series on medical tourism at the border with a San Diego woman who gets diagnosed with cancer. Again. But this time, she says she's going to do her own thing and skip the chemo. I told them I wasn't going to do it this time. I was going to go the holistic route and I was going to do my own research. Research that would eventually lead her to Tijuana. Port of Entry is written and produced by Kinsey Moreland. Emily Jankowski is the co-producer and director of sound design. Elisa Barba edited this episode. Lisa Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is the interim associate general manager of content. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And hey, while we're here, we need your help. We want to know what we should call our most loyal listeners. Like, what if we called y'all border crossers? Border babies, maybe? Or should we go with fronterizos? See, we really do need your help coming up with something that makes sense. So call 619-452-0228 and leave us a message. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you think we should call our listeners. Thank you in advance. Okay. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.